Happy Valentine's Day, Valentine. Oh, so sweet. Where's my box of chocolates? Oh, yeah, about that. I would say my dog ate it. <laughs> but like, clearly, <laughs> clearly, that's where that excuse does not work out well. It's where it really falls right. apart. Well, I didn't get you anything either. So I think we're even and uh, your husband can uh, can make up for that for me, hopefully. Yeah. And Smudge, real. too. Hopefully Smudge Where are my presents at? For you. <laughs> I know Smudge hasn't gotten me anything yet other than some mild anxiety at the dog park, but um, (laughs) I don't really expect anything more from him. Ruthie gave me a gift of diarrhea last night, so um, (laughs) that was her version of chocolate. Uh, I, I am very, listen, Valentine's Day, it's a great holiday where people are forced to show their love and appreciation for people in their lives and you know you and I have talked about this a lot where we have wondered do our dogs love us do our dogs love us the same way that we love them and also can animals experience the feeling of what it means to fall in love what do you think Well, I think they do. They do love us. I can feel it. I can see it, you know, in Smudge's eyes. I can see it, you know, with other, you know, with my friends' pets. There's definitely love there. Now, whether cats can love, have the capacity to love, I could not tell you. But in dogs, I do think it's possible. And I also think that animals can fall in love. Because I remember reading something about penguins once, that they form these incredible, like, I don't know, lifelong companion love stories. And so I'm, I'm a believer, Anya, and maybe it's just because it's Valentine's Day, but I am a, a total believer in animal love stories. <laughs> I, I am too. I, I believe that Ruthie loves me. I, and sometimes I think it just teeters more on the edge of just tolerates me because of the look. <laughs> The looks that she gives me, she reminds me of my mother sometimes and the disapproving looks my mom would give me when I was doing something that she didn't approve of. Green um, Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But there have been a lot of studies that have been conducted around animals uh, broadly and what love looks like in the animal kingdom And then also more specifically around dogs, there's been a lot of studies done around how their brains react when uh, they see someone that they're familiar with or smell something that they're familiar with. So we're going to talk about some of these studies and some of the theories that have been put out there by some of the great thinkers in the animal world. And then you and I are going to have to really come to a conclusive uh, place of do animals love because this is going to be the end all be all. This is where we're going to put an end to the debate that people oh, are man. having. Happy Valentine's Day, Valentine. Oh, so sweet. Where's my box of chocolates? Oh, yeah, about that. I would say my dog ate it. <laughs> but like, clearly, <laughs> clearly, that's where that excuse does not work out well. It's where it really falls right. apart. Well, I didn't get you anything either. So I think we're even and uh, your husband can uh, can make up for that for me. Hopefully. And yeah, Smudge, real. too. Hopefully Smudge Where are my presents at? For you. <laughs> I know. Smudge hasn't gotten me anything yet other than some mild anxiety at the dog park. But um, <laughs> well, I don't really expect me, anything more from him. Ruthie gave me a gift of diarrhea last night. So um, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That was no, her no. version of chocolate. Uh, I, I am very... Listen, Valentine's Day, it's a great holiday where people are forced to show their love and appreciation 
<laughs> for people in their lives. And, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot where we have wondered, do our dogs love us? Do our dogs love us the same way that we love them? And also, can animals experience the feeling of what it means to fall in love? What do you think? Well, I think they do. They do love us. I can feel it. I can see it, you know, in Smudge's eyes. I can see it, you know, with other, with my friends' pets. There's definitely love there. Now, whether cats can love have the capacity to love, I could not tell you. But in dogs, I do think it's possible. And I also think that animals can fall in love. Because I remember reading something about penguins once, that they form these incredible, like, I don't know, lifelong companion love stories. And so I'm I'm a believer, Anya. And maybe it's just because it's Valentine's Day. But I am a, a total believer in animal love stories. <laughs> I, I am too. I, I believe that Ruthie loves me. I, and sometimes I think it just teeters more on the edge of just tolerates me. Because of the, <laughs> look, the looks that she gives me, she reminds me of my mother sometimes and the disapproving looks my mom would give me when I was doing something that she didn't approve of. Green um, Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But there have been a lot of studies that have been conducted around animals uh, broadly and what love looks like in the animal kingdom. And then also more specifically around dogs, there's been a lot of studies done around how their brains react when uh, they see someone that they're familiar with or smell something that they're familiar with. So we're going to talk about some of these studies and some of the theories that have been put out there by some of the great thinkers in the animal world. And then you and I are going to have to really come to a conclusive uh, place of do animals love because this is going to be the end all be all. This is where we're going to put an end to the debate that people oh, are man. having. And scientists are going to use this podcast episode for future studies regarding if animals love the way humans do. So there's a lot of a lot of pressure writing on this one. I really hope to see this podcast linked to the Wikipedia entry on do animals fall in love. And just quick segue, I have to say, Anya, that these um these sessions that we're doing have brought me such joy. I had no idea what a great little academic you are. And so, um, you know, really enjoy your research and deep dives into all these esoteric topics. And I can only imagine what else you have in store for us this year. I am an expert cliff noter. <laughs> <laughs> all my book reports were written off cliff notes. I got really good at it. <laughs> Okay, well, so, oh, yeah, sorry. Kick it off. Like, what's what's going on with these animal scientists? How are they going to dash my, my hopes and dreams? <laughs> so, Claudia Vink is an animal behavior biologist at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And she has been studying animals for a very, very long time in terms of the types of bonds and attachments they create with other animals. And I, and I want to be clear when we're talking right now about love in the animal kingdom. We're talking about how animals love their own species. We'll get into do our dogs love us in a little bit, but this is more focused on right now. Do animals experience love with their own kind? And can they experience it the way that humans apparently do? So Claudia brings up albatrosses as, 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 as an example of an animal where they can go back to the same partner their whole lives. Sometimes and, sorry, Anya, course. what's an albatross? It's some kind of bird. Oh. Oh, man. Right? I was imagining like a whale with a name like albatross. But Yeah, it's a bird. It's a bird. It's a okay. large seabird that is related to the Procleorides storm petrels, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
a little right though with large and aquatic. So okay, continue. Yeah. So at, at, she said the whole year they're flying over the oceans, and then once a year they come back to an island and they will see their partner and greet each other. And there are rituals that look like love. And if you see those rituals, you must say that there must be more than just an attachment bond. And attachment is a word that comes up a lot in these different studies that I read from different um, animal scientists where they, you know, love is a form of an attachment. And so that's in some ways how they are describing love is feeling attached to something else and needing to be around it. And so albatrosses are an example of that. Um, but as we know, you know, love can be defined in a variety of ways. And sometimes people view love as strictly being monogamous. Uh, that doesn't always fly in the human world where people are monogamous, but they, they may have their primary partner and then have some side pieces as well. Um, and in the animal world, that is obviously uh, true in different ways. So they have studied monogamy in all different kinds of animals, from birds to beetles. And some animals are sexually monogamous, and they never mate with another individual outside of their partner while let others, me guess that rabbits are not included on that list <laughs> <laughs> i i did not look up the list yet i can look that up right now um but there's not a perfect pattern as to which species will be monogamous and which won't because it's really related to how those species reproduce so for instance if an animal's babies need a lot of attention it's beneficial for both parents to help out and to have those same parents that help bring that baby into this world, take care of that child or that little animal baby together. And so birds are an example that they bring up as, as far as ones that tend to be more monogamous in nature um, because they chicks need round-the-clock feeding. So the mom and the dad will play an important role in making sure that that little bird is getting fed. While cats, though, like some female mammals, have multiple fathers for the same litter of cubs. So cats can get a little frisky. Doesn't and it's the only me. time I feel like where women aren't shamed for having multiple baby daddies. You know, that's a really good point. That's like a very human-specific thing. I, we can get into that later, but very interesting. So it's encouraged as a form of, I don't know, should we say like prosperity or survival that these cats need to have multiple baby daddies? You know, I think just cats, you know, listen, if I was a sexy cheetah, if I was a sexy leopard, you think I would just be sticking with one of the cats from my litter? Probably not. I'd be playing around. I'd I'd play the bases. I'd try out all the different cat dick just to see. <laughs> Anya, we don't say that on this show. We have children listening to our educational content here on Furfluencers. Also, I was about to say, why do you need to be a cheetah for this? This sounds like you right now. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, if it's if it's socially acceptable and it's the one place as like a female where it's not seen as a bad thing to hoe around a little bit. I would definitely take advantage of that. I don't think cats really know how good they have it in terms of not having the double standards that women have as humans. <laughs> they need to appreciate that more. But what's interesting is on uh, for for these cats, uh, you know, these large mammal cats, uh, 
the males actually might be the monogamous ones where they will then fight off the other male cats and help take care of the offspring and kind of the way that they have defined it is they might be like well I don't hate being around this particular cat so I'm gonna stick with her and ride this out and it kind of sounds like they're settling down the way it's been described (laughs) but but yeah they the guy some male cats and and the in in this large cat world tend to stick with one partner and they will fight to make sure that no other dudes come and get their lady a lot of scientists have tried to define what love does look like in the animal world and I think it's an interesting practice in, or in terms of it's an, it's interesting to study because I think in the human world, we don't even really know what that looks like, right? Like everyone has a different definition of what love feels like, what it looks like. You know, I think maybe from the fairy tale side of things, we can attribute it to like the butterflies in the stomach and, and feeling giddy and happy every time you see whoever it is that you may love or you can be astronomically annoyed by them, which can also be something that people see as a loving thing when you can be annoyed by someone, but also want to continue being around them. What does that mean? Oh, and, it's so romantic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, t- so for me, it's, it's interesting that we're even having this conversation because I think humans are obsessed with the idea and the thought of love, right? Like think of all of the books written about love, all of the magazines that have tips for people that are in relationships or how to find the love of their lives. What does that look like in the animal world? Do they have their own like self-help section that they go to or like they go and get advice from their elders on what love is or they go see a therapist? Because I was going to say couples therapy for elephants. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I, who knows? I mean, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because sometimes I wonder, is it valuable to, you know, like, and I will get into this, but do you think that it's valuable to study if animals love each other the way that humans can love each other? My honest answer is maybe. I think it depends on why we're trying to answer that question. Like what is the the scientific or the social value in doing that? And maybe if you know we see that animals do love each other the way people can, maybe that changes how we treat animals or we treat groups of animals knowing that if I'm guessing if they can love, they can probably then suffer, you know, heartbreak and disappointment and it might help inform the way that we interact with them at the same time. You know, I I don't think we've really cracked it for people. (laughs) So I don't really know if we're going to be able to figure this out for the animals either. So I know, I know. If we can't figure it out for us, how can we figure it out for for humans? Well, there is a reason why, though, that scientists do study this. And that is specifically for endangered species because they need to understand what makes an animal love the same animals so that they will reproduce with each other. So it's not just... So much you know, sense. it's not just like sticking two of the same animals in a, in a room together and be like, all right, lead you two to it. Come back in an hour. <laughs> you know, I'll knock before entering. And so they have to figure out what it is that makes that other animal, you know, that the other gender of that species attractive to to each other so that they will eventually mate. So it I- is important for that scientific reason. And I've read stories like that in in the papers. Like I've definitely read, you know, such and such zoo struggling to get this panda to, you know, find a mate. Or I think there's certain like big cats, like snow leopards, and like there are some very picky animals out there. Like there are some animals that are like very. I, I can relate, guys. Those pandas, those snow leopards. I hear you. Very picky, very particular. Um, I understand, but I also 
you know, I can see the value of trying to understand this from a scientific perspective and just keeping these species going as well, considering mm-hmm. how many other problems we're making for them. Well, and when we're talking about too, I mean, experience emotion, missing someone, grief. So there are animals that they have studied that do experience grief. Elephants are one of them. Um, they are one of the few animals who have very similar patterns into in terms of how humans mourn. And elephants actually are documented to be able to cry. And another interesting thing that they do is they will bury their dead and pay tribute to the bodies and to the bones. And so they will basically like huddle around one of the elephants that have passed from their herd and they will mourn and grieve together. And I feel like you don't grieve or mourn something that you did not have some love and attachment to, right? It's like, I can't tell you how many times I've lost AirPods. (laughs) The other day I lost an AirPod in a grate walking down the street while putting it in my ear and my clumsy hands dropped it into a grate and I just watched it tumble and I was like, okay, well, guess I'm getting new AirPods again. And I felt nothing. I think at this point with my AirPod situation, it's just expected. So I was just like, okay, well, there goes more money. Um, But I mean, think of how many things you have lost, whether it's, I mean, it could be, you know, maybe you lost a mug that you had or whatever it is. Right. And you know that it's replaceable. So you don't grieve it. You're like, Oh, well that sucks. I'll just get a new one. But with things that you actually love, even items, like there are things that are heirlooms that I know that if I lost it, like something that my mom has given me, that's really special. If I lost that, it would make me sad because it's something that I love because it's a, a it's representation of my relationship with my mom, right? Yeah. yeah and I just don't special think meaning imbued in those objects. I just don't think that you grieve things that you don't love in some in some way. That's a really good point. And um yeah, for the elephants, I mean it's I feel like the way that we've sort of defined being human, there are a number of ways that it's been done, but you know, the idea of being able to think at a certain very highly elevated um, level and just having these rituals and ceremonies. I mean, you can imagine early people starting to develop these ceremonies to honor their dead. And it's kind of like, all right, well, if the elephants can do it, maybe we should be treating them a little bit more nicely than we do. How do you want to be mourned when you die? (laughs) Oh, man. You want me to huddle around your dead body and... (laughs) I want it to be like Hunter S. Thompson. I want you to fire me out of a cannon. (laughs) And then it's going to be single malts and Negronis for everybody. (laughs) I like that. I can't wait to go to your funeral. (laughs) Fireworks. I have another question for you. Oh, God. You know, in regards to the reasons why scientists do study, why animals or if they can love each other, you know, to help endangered species reproduce. If you were stuck on this earth with someone else and you're the last two people on this earth and you could not stand that other person, but you guys had to reproduce, would you do it to save the human race? Absolutely not. Because if we get to that point where it's just me and some dodo, like we don't deserve to continue on this planet. It th- like we as <laughs> we as a species deserve to die out at that point. So I I think I'll take one for the team by putting an end to humankind at that point. Like if it were me and Donald Trump, it's just not happening on you. Not happening. <laughs> what about Roger Stone? <laughs> I wish that our listeners could see my face right now. It's like a fish. Very, very. So we can't count fish. on you then. We can't count no. on you. Unreliable. 
All right. I would take one for the team, but I'm getting old and crusty, so I don't know how much longer my eggs will be good for. Um, But good to know. Good to know. I think that should be something, you know, how on driver's license, on a driver's license, how, you know, it says, will you donate your organs? They need to have a a little thing in there. If you're the last human on earth, (laughs) will you procreate with the other, other, the other human that's left? Donald Trump. I think, I think they need to, I think we need to know who is, you know, willing to save humankind (laughs) so we can prioritize those people. But that's good to know. So, yeah, I mean, as far as it, it, the, the animal world, it's still very, um, listen, there are so many unknowns with it still as far as, like, how animals can show love, how they can experience love. And at some point, I would love to get one of these scientists and researchers on to help describe the process of how they actually study what that looks like. Because, like I said, I mean when I think of love, it's so much attributed to a feeling. And I know that they can put little receptors on your brain and little things will fire off when you're feeling good or when you're feeling sad or stressed. And it'll be a good indicator in some respects of what that actually means of what you're feeling. But you, how do you do that with animals? How do you, how do you study that other than just behavior and how they have attachments with each other? Because it's not like we can speak their same language. And say, so, do you like Billy over there? He has a crush on you, you know? <laughs> it's just, I don't know how you do that. Well, maybe, like, if you think about the things that are the most precious to animals, I would say food, right? Like, food is, food and, like, maybe, like, their offspring. But I'm thinking, like, food in particular. So maybe animals who were willing to resource share, you know, they're showing love. Like, you know, moms feed their babies. I, that might be more like you're born with that mentality. But mm-hmm. maybe if one animal is offering to share its food with like, it could be another leopard. One wolf is sharing with another wolf. You know, maybe that's a sign of love. Like you're sharing snacks with each other. I mean, listen, if I'm sharing snacks with you, I like you at the bare minimum. I don't just share my snacks with anyone. So I think that's a pretty good barometer to work off of. Maybe we should be scientists. <laughs> Honestly, we'd probably do a better job a than a lot of the ones in the animal world. Throw some meat out to the lions and see who shares the, the meat. Be like, exactly. okay, they love that one. <laughs> we can set some blueberries out in the forests of upstate New York and see which bears decide to share with each other. That's a good one for dogs because dogs can't eat certain berries. So if like they see a grape and then they see another dog about to eat that grape, do they stop that dog from eating that grape or do they let them? Or do they? I think Ruthie would let it happen. (laughs) Yeah, she probably would. (laughs) But now we get into the most important part of our discussion, which is do our dogs love us? Listen, I'm not going to have a pet cheetah anytime soon, so I don't care if they love me. I need to know, does Ruthie love me? Am I going to like where this conversation's going? Am I going to be sad at the end? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Listen, they're, you know, scientists are a funny crew. I will say that because they'll reference another study and be like, well, you know, so-and-so said this, but really... And it just makes me think, what do they really know? You know, for the longest time, I thought egg yolk was bad for me because of all these studies that came out. Turns out egg yolk is the healthiest part of the egg. You know, so (laughs) this is where sometimes I just take some scientists with a grain of salt, let them go in their little labs with their little coats on and with their lobbyist money, with their lobbyist money. And, uh, you know, do whatever experiments they need to to make themselves feel smart. No offense to researchers or scientists that may listen to this, but it's inconclusive. But But generally, the consensus is that dogs have an attachment to us. 
And some people may define that as love. Some people may just define that as, oh, you're my caretaker, so I need you. And so they they bond with that knowing that you are the reason why they are alive still and why they have a good life. <laughs> uh, there's a researcher and doctor, Dr. Wynn, um, based out of Arizona, and he does not agree with the scientific point of view that dogs have uh, a unique ability to understand or communicate with humans. What he thinks is that they have a unique capacity for interspecies love, um, which means that if they are raised with a herd of sheep, they will love and protect those sheep. If they are raised with humans, they will love and protect humans. So were they shown express love and attachment to is whatever they are raised with. And that is what his theory is as far as what he has studied is that dogs are very good at being adaptable to different environments with the species that they are with. And listen, if there's one website or social account that has shown us that it's the dodo, because I can't tell you how many videos I've seen with a dog and a chicklet, a dog and a pig, a dog and a horse were their best buds, but they were raised with that other animal. And so they have an attachment to that. And it's one of the very few species that are able to connect and bond with other different types of animals. Um, when they looked at wolves, for instance, so even though dogs are descendants of wolves and it's hard to think that Ruthie or Smudge were, have any wolf in them whatsoever, <laughs> that they came from that world. Wolves are very, very hard. Uh, it's very difficult with wolves to uh, uh, make them feel a bond with humans. So unlike a dog where if you spend 90 minutes a day with a dog, this is a study that was done about 90 minutes a day with a dog, you feed them, walk them, play with them. They will form a bond with you more immediately. But with wolves, you basically need to be around them 24 seven for them to build a bond with you and where they will see you as a safe person and where they will create an attachment to you. So the way dogs have been bred and have evolved over time uh, is very different than how wolves' DNA and psyche is. Which makes sense. Dogs have been bred to love us, to trust us, and you know to work for us. So I'm not surprised that something in yeah their DNA, their brains has evolved you know to do that and. I would say, you know, spending at least 90 minutes a day with Smudge and giving him freshly boiled chicken is definitely a way to get him to love you. And you know how I know that Smudge loves me? It's not just the way he looks at me in the morning when he wants to go to the dog park with those big pleading eyes. But when he wiggles his little backside whenever I come home, that's how I know he loves me. You know, like, who else would do that for me? Nobody else, else wiggles, wiggles their backside. Does Josh wiggle for you? <laughs> no, you there's no twerking <laughs> when I come in. Sometimes there's an acknowledgement that I'm home. But Smudge, yeah, the, the little twerks. That's how I know he loves me. So I was thinking about this interspecies uh, love, though, or relationships that dogs can have. And it made me think about Ruthie and how much of a traitor she is because I think that if anyone gave her just a little bit more attention than I gave her, if it was a cat, if it was a goat, she would turn on me and go give love to this other thing. I think, I think she would dump me in a heartbeat if she could find someone that would give her more attention. And I've been dumped before, and that would be the hardest dumping I've ever taken in my life. I don't think she'd do that to you. No. Listen. It would be temporary. She would crawl back to you at the end of the day. She'd That's find her true, way home. Which I've also had happen after I've been dumped. So. <laughs> they don't realize what they got till they don't have it anymore. <laughs> That's right. And then the little tap, tap, tap. Yeah. <laughs> Throwing rocks at the window. 
I live on a fire escape, though, so they could just crawl up there. Ruthie could just crawl through the fire escape if she needs to. <laughs> but they, and then there are other scientists, though, that have done other research. Gregory Burns, who is a neuroeconomist. I didn't even know that was a thing until I was reading these studies. Uh, found that a part of the dog's brain lights up when they hear their owner's voice. And it's the same part of the human brain that lights up when we are fond of someone or something. So, which it's interesting because I've read other studies though, where it kind of contradicts that a little bit where it's more smell for dogs than anything else where if they, they're more attracted to your smell. So like, if I have a t-shirt that I have worn and I haven't washed it for a couple of days and I just throw it on the floor, Ruthie will go and cuddle with that t-shirt. I'm assuming it's because it smells like me, but I don't know if you've had the experience where, you know, if I've been out and I, someone's watching my dog and I FaceTime and I try to get Ruthie's attention, she doesn't really listen to the voice through the FaceTime. No, we've tried that as well. It doesn't work. Yeah, I'm not sure either. It's so funny you said that because I remember thinking that a couple times when I've tried to talk to him over FaceTime. Like I've been on a work trip and, you know, he and Josh are FaceTiming with me and he doesn't seem to pay attention. And I'm wondering, is it that the phone, like, are they so hypersensitive to tone and sound that the way my voice is coming through the phone doesn't sound like me anymore? Like I, I was wondering if that, but that was even part if, of but it. But even seeing you, right? Even seeing you doesn't do anything for them if they see you on the screen. So you look the same, right? Typically, <laughs> when you're FaceTiming. Sometimes I look a little off when I FaceTime. Yeah, it someone. depends on, you know, it the depends work on what trip. time of the day we're calling <laughs> right. me. Uh But they don't, she doesn't react to that either, but she reacts to smells more. So this study I found fascinating in regards to my own experiences with dogs in general, though, as not being something that really, I mean, but listen, it is true though. I could say anything to Ruthie and her, her tail will wag depending on the tone of my voice. So if I'm doing my high pitch, oh, Ruthie, I love you. Oh, her tail will start wagging. I could literally say, I could say anything. I could call her the meanest names as long as I'm saying it with a high pitched loving voice. So she does respond to that and her tail wags and she gets excited. So maybe there is some validity to the study in that respect. And, and it didn't specify what I read in terms of tone though, either, which that would be something else that I would be curious about is does it depend on the tone that is being used by the human on what part of that brain of that dog lights up. I feel like tone has something to do with it because I could say anything to smudge. And as long as I say it in this certain voice that like really fun, like, okay, we're gonna go to the park. We're gonna go to the park. We're gonna go to the park. As long as I'm making those sort of like high, higher pitch, little like poppy squeaky sounds, he gets excited. And anything that's in a lower voice, he either doesn't pay attention or he knows he's in trouble. Interesting. And maybe that's yeah. just like social conditioning. That's the way we talk to each other. We're excited. Our voices go up and we're mad at each other. We get really low like Elizabeth Holmes. And- <laughs> that was a good impression. <laughs> and so, <laughs> thank you. And so perhaps dogs have gotten that way as well. Well, what's another interesting thing that they found though is that dogs have, you know, they're very similar in the gene pool of humans as well. So our DNA is very closely matched to dogs DNA and they identify genes in dogs that are associated with humans and with a specific uh, genetic disorder. That's very rare called williams burren syndrome and williams burren syndrome is essentially indiscriminate friendliness where you will be friends with anyone and anything, no caution whatsoever. And dogs and humans share that trait in some capacity. 
And so they believe that this Williams-Burren syndrome in humans un is an underlie of the friendliness of dogs that is compared to wolves. So because dogs have an abnormal willingness to form strong emotional bonds with almost anything that crosses their path, um, and they maintain this throughout the, their life, they will have more of a willingness to interact with strangers too. And so that can be seen as love as well. I mean, I think actually in some cases, some of the most loving people I have met are the most open and non-judgmental where they do love everyone and everything, maybe to a fault, but it is really coming from a good place of, I just want everyone to feel good. And I think dogs kind of have that in them, generally speaking, most dogs that I run into or have encountered where they're just happy to see you and they want to make you feel good. And they also want you to pet them. <laughs> but some dogs, I mean, again, like Smudge is a really good example. Like he's got the opposite of that where he doesn't right. want to engage with anybody. So somebody approaches him and most of the time he is like, nope, danger, this is bad. And you know, he backs off, which sometimes I think can be a positive thing that he's just not. Yeah, you know, stranger danger. Exactly. You know, he's not trying to be everyone's best friend. What's the opposite of Williams-Burren syndrome? The opposite of over-friendliness? My aunt uh, New Paula. Yorkers? <laughs> Your aunt Paula. <laughs> Say anybody on the subway right now? <laughs> anybody on the subway at this point? Yeah, we're all ready. <laughs> Knives out. <laughs> um, there, and there's a, a scientist, Alexander Horowitz, who is the head of dog co cognition of the Dog Cognition Lab at Bernard College. And she made a really interesting statement to me that that really stood out, which was, for all we know, dogs' emotional experience is far more elaborate than ours. And, you know, kind of tying back into us trying to define what love is, I do wonder as far as, I, listen, I do believe that animals across the board experience emotions and feelings. And as humans, we're constantly trying to analyze what a feeling is. We have books on anxiety. We have books on anger. We have books on depression, love, everything, right? Where we try to understand every human emotion that we can possibly feel, we go to therapy to try to figure it out. And it, it makes me wonder in terms of specifically, let's, if we're sticking to dogs, what that experience might be for them if they are feeling sad, but they don't really have a word to ascribe to it, right? There's no one telling them that they're feeling sad because X, Y, Z. So do they just have to live with that sadness without fully understanding at all what it is that's making them sad or what it is that's making them happy? And because of not being able to have those clear-cut definitions or clear-cut definitions, generally speaking of what it is, does that make their existence tougher from an emotional standpoint if they can't define it? Well, I mean, but do they care about defining it? Like, I think, like, okay, so I'm gonna try to be a scientist here. Bear with me. I feel like happiness for, for dogs, at least my dog, is usually the, like, he, he gets something. You know, he receives something. So it's the receiving of things, um, attention, toys, food, the arrival of somebody he likes, those things make him happy. And when any of those things are taken away or not given, then he gets unhappy. So like my sister visits, he loves my sister. And then she leaves, like he doesn't, he's like sulking, he's not happy. And I'm wondering if that's how they're processing it. Like, I have this thing, or now I don't have this thing. And it's that, like, very basic, it's here or it's not. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's not as, um, their emotions aren't as interwoven as ours as far as how they connect to each other for different things. 
See, my my theory is, and I and I feel this way about children too. Like when my niece is sick and she doesn't know, you know, she's so young, she's four, and she has a little bit more understanding now. But particularly when she was a baby, and she's sick and she's not feeling well, and you you want to be able to explain to them, you're gonna feel better. This is temporary. I know you don't understand what's going on right now. You don't understand why we're shoving medicine down your throat. Okay. But this is going to help you feel better because she doesn't have a full understanding or awareness of what's going on. And I, I think it's not, in some ways, like that makes it more challenging. And I think about it through the lens of, I guess, my own experiences of when I have gone through bouts of depression and I'm not, I don't understand where that sadness is coming from. Like everything in my life is fine. Everything is good, but I'm still sad and I can't get up and I can't move. And, you know, you're digging and digging and you're trying to get to the root of what it is that's causing that deep sadness. And it makes it almost more uh, unbearable at times because you can't define it in any way or you there's nothing that you can do to make it better because you don't know what's making you sad. So I, I just want, I think dogs are very intelligent. We, we know that. And I think they're more emotionally intelligent than we give them credit for. So I do think in some ways they're like a child that they're like, what the fuck is going on? Can someone just tell me why I'm sad right now? Why did mom leave? Like if I could tell Ruthie, I'm leaving to go buy you food and treats right now. If she knew that, then maybe she wouldn't be sad when I leave because then she knew I was coming back and I was going to be coming back with treats. So she would have something to look forward to and to be happy about. I try to have that conversation with Smudge all the time. I'm like, mommy, go back soon with chicken, with food. Like I try and he's like staring at me and by the door. <laughs> it's like very confused, very unhappy, like little little boy face and i'm like mommy go back soon food and i try to tell him i don't know if he's figured it out yet i think you should start talking to josh like that (laughs) (laughs) wifey go wifey come back back he make dinner now husband clean dishes exactly (laughs) husband put out the fire that is still burning on the stove yeah. <laughs> oh, he'd love it. But uh yeah, I should go check the uh fine print on that prenup agreement. <laughs> I don't know. I just think I think it's just so much I'll be curious to see as a I mean, Bernard College has a dog cognition lab. Duke has a lab where they study the brains of dogs. Emory as well does. I, I was surprised to see how many universities have specific labs dedicated to studying dogs in particular. Um, there's not really any for cats <laughs> that I found. Um, but I do think they are just so much more complex than than we give them credit for in terms of them experiencing an array of an emotions. And I personally believe them not being able to understand where the root of those emotions come from can make it maybe more challenging at times to go through the life that they have, even though everything for the most part seems content um, because we can't explain to them why they're sick too. Like think about when your dog is sick as well. Oh, it's the worst. It's the like, worst. You're so and they, and desperate they just to communicate give you with them. Eyes and you want to tell them you're going to get better, I promise. I just need a stool sample to take to the vet <laughs> so they know God. what medicine to give you. Like, <laughs> you just wish you could tell them what is going on. That's the hardest. Like at least at some point you can you know communicate to your kids what's happening but yeah I it does make me sad like there are things I wish I could explain to him I know I'll never be able to but you know Anya maybe that's part of the mystery of love too you know, maybe the problem with humans is that we over communicate we over explain things and there's just no mystery anymore my ex would say he agrees with you on that <laughs> that I talk way I don't too know much if I like that you. 
<laughs> I don't know if I like that comparison. <laughs> But I do think sometimes we do overcomplicate things as far as our own feelings and ascribing meaning to stuff that doesn't necessarily have meaning. Um, but I want to end this section um, with a quote from Carl Safina, who's an ecologist, and he has been cited in more than 200,000 animal studies. And he was asked in the New York Times, do dogs love us? And he said, that's easy. Yes. I don't need to scan their brain activity to know it. this. They show it in their actions and the choices that they make. Our dogs sleep on the floor in our bedroom just to be near us. We've never given them any treats in that room. The only thing they get it for the effort of climbing the stairs is proximity to us. At dawn, two of the three jump on the bed, and Jude the third has a knee problem and he can't. So when we wake up, it's all tongues out and tails. And he goes, oh, happy day. And during the day, they roam free in the house and the yard. If I'm riding or working outside, they're never more than 100 feet away from me. That is their choice. My point is that they seek us out just to be near us. And what is love's oh. fundamental emotion? It's the desire to be near loved ones. So yes, dogs can love their humans. Out of everything that I read, all of the scientific studies of the scans and this and that, this was the most simplified, um, I think, explanation and, and most pure explanation that I, I read someone give as to highlighting how dogs do show their love for us. Um, and it makes so much sense because, I, I mean, I feel like how many people do you know that have dogs where they're like, I just have a shadow that is just constantly following me around my house. I'm in my kitchen cooking. Obviously with food, it's a little different because they are, you know, if you drop the food, they want it. But like when I'm on my couch, Ruthie's snuggled up next to me. If I'm in my bed, she wants to be in bed with me. If I'm at my desk, she's at my feet. Like they are, I, the idea of them showing love by wanting to be near to us is something that I, I think is relatable to humans because with our friends, with people that we're in romantic relationships with, we want to be close to them. We want to spend time with them. We want to be near them. And I think that's like the best definition that anyone has given a, in a way of how dogs show love. It's so beautiful. You're going to make me cry. Well, Carl Safina is going to make you cry. Not me. He said it. <laughs> not me. <laughs> I think that's so lovely. And you know what? I again, like I did think there's just something there's something wonderful about love, Anya. Like I think it's wonderful, you know, when it happens with humans, and I think it's wonderful when it happens with animals or appropriately between animals and humans and you know, who doesn't love a good love story? They've been around since the dawn of time and it's funny because actually if I think of some of my favorite love stories, they actually do involve animals. Oh, I, I'm excited to talk about this, but I want to share one thing with you about cats because cats did not get brought <laughs> up in this. And, and I thought this was hilarious when I read this. They did a study on how cats and dogs bond with their owners and they found that dogs securely attached um, to the sim to their owners the way similar the oh, okay let, let me start over. They found that dogs tend to behave similarly to the way infants do uh, when their parents leave, whereas cats tend not to do that. And cats uh, tend to have more of an avoidant attachment style and often ignore their owners, but don't mind getting pets by strangers, which I thought was hilarious because I actually have been reading a lot about attachment styles in the human form. And when they brought up the avoidant attachment style of cats, it makes it made me laugh so hard because I've been trying to understand th certain things in my life as far as how I attach to people. And I was like, am I a cat? <laughs> I am a cat, except with my dog. 
So I just thought that was hilarious that that cats are just known to be like, eh, whatever. Hilarious and not at all you. surprising to me. Not like, at all zero, surprising. Zero surprise there. But I was, okay, We you mentioned though, animal couples. I want to know yeah. who some of your favorites are. Okay. And so these aren't necessarily romantic couples, but you know, these are just pairings that I think are really sweet. So the first one takes me all the way back to being maybe like four or five years old. And I was obsessed with the Disney movie, The Fox and the Hound. Just like absolutely obsessed with it because I love dogs more than anything. It had a dog and a dog related creature. It was a beautiful story about you know, two animals that are not supposed to like each other. They're like brought up and raised to dislike each other, but they still, they find each other and they love each other and they have this beautiful, incredible friendship. And so I, I, I must've watched that movie, like, I don't know, three, 400 times as a child. Really? That loved it. A lot. <laughs> I watched 101 Dalmatians more than that. <laughs> That is a great film, though, too. Totally great so film. Good. That's so well. Pongo and Prita are uh, lovers in the 101 Dalmatians, too. They're a couple in that movie. I, That's true, yeah. I, I can't out. say that I ever really watched Fox and the Hound. I'm trying to think if I did. I maybe did, but maybe I wasn't as fascinated with it as you when you were younger, so I didn't remember it. Uh, Dumbo, the bond between Dumbo and his mom. I, that movie, I, I have watched that movie probably the same amount of times as you've watched the Fox and the Hound and the the, Dumbo and the mouse in that film. I love how the mouse just tries to like keep his spirits up, keep him happy, is looking out for him all the time. It's that inner, it's like that inner species uh, love that dogs can yes. have, right? <laughs> but it's a mouse and an elephant. And obviously, um, you know, that film is just such a tearjerker for me every time I've watched it. And one of the reasons why I really like that film, though, is because my ears did not fit my head when I was a kid. <laughs> I'd re- like my ears were really big for my head. And it made me feel like it was okay that I had big ears when I watched Dumbo. (laughs) So that was part of the reason why I also loved that film. It is so, so sweet. Yeah. Give me another one. What's another coupling in the animal world that you, uh, you like? So this is less of a tearjerker. This is more just like... Again, kind of that opposites attract thing. For some reason, I seem to be leaning into. Um, (laughs) Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy. I think they are such a fabulous duo. They're so different. We've got two different animals, two different personalities. I mean, they're both, you know, they're both theatrical, but Kermit much more calm. He's like your best friend. Miss Piggy is total diva. You know, she's got some... uh, some serious Jennifer Coolidge vibes, which I really appreciate. Definitely look up to and admire Miss Piggy. And I think despite like her eccentricities and, you know, Kermit's seeming modesty and calmness, they, you know, they work. They just come together and they seem to be this perfect little duo. Isn't she kind of mean to him sometimes? No. She just keeps no. him on his toes. It's good for them. I got to Google this. Is Miss Piggy (laughs) mean to Kermit? Oh, please. He can can get a thicker skin. She's fine. (laughs) Okay, so here's an article in Newsweek about the turbulent romance of Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog. Pshh. The relationship between pig and frog has always been fraught, one as long as we've known them. Miss Piggy passionately pursues a seemingly less than willing to commit Kermit in a perpetual cycle. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. 
She came from a farm and she had to leave home because her father died in a tractor accident and her mother was alone and Piggy grew up. It was fine. But then as she got older, these suitors who came for her mother paid more attention to Piggy and there was tremendous tension. Finally, Piggy just had to leave it, leave and go it alone. She didn't have anything really. So like many single women, she had to take care of herself. So that's how she became this little independent Piggy who found a frog who won't commit to Oh my god. Those are the relationships that we're teaching our children to emulate, by the way. <laughs> it's great. No problems there. No problem <laughs> whatsoever. Um, okay, so I'll give you my last favorite pairing, one of my favorite pairings from childhood, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. I... First of all, this is embarrassing to say, but I had a crush on Bugs Bunny when I was younger. I don't know why. I just did. <laughs> I was in love with him, and my sister would make fun of me for it and tell me that he had married Babs Bunny, and I would start crying and saying that he was supposed to marry me. Oh, and no. I don't remember when I realized that it was weird to have a crush on a cartoon rabbit. But what I think I was really drawn to when I was younger with him in particular was his free spirit. He was, you know, kind of a troublemaker, was, you know, always up to no good. And I liked that about him. He was like a bad boy, you know. <laughs> But it also, I think it explains a lot about myself in terms of my taste in men because... And nature versus nurture. Yeah. Where Bugs Bunny, not a... First of all, not a human cartoon, of a, a, a cartoon rabbit. Um, so unavailable in more ways than one. Uh, then my other childhood crush was Lance Bass from NSYNC. Uh, that was never going to work for uh, reasons that I don't need to explain. And then Ricky Martin. So I really liked men that were not available to me in any way <laughs> whatsoever. But in regards Variations to on a theme. <laughs> variations. Yeah, and Bugs Bunny, uh, cross-dressed. He, he's a cross-dresser in a lot of his shows, so who knows? I have a thing that I don't know. I'll I'll look into that later. I'm sure there's a book on it. Um, you're very open-minded, Anya. Yeah. That's <laughs> that, that's really commendable. But so I love progressive. his relationship with Elmer Fudd because, one, like, Elmer Fudd would never actually kill him, right? Like, there's all these different scenes and episodes where it's always, I'm going to get this rabbit. I got you, rabbit. And he never gets him, but you know, he would never actually do anything to him because it's like that thing we were talking about earlier where you can be really annoyed with someone, but that thing that makes him so annoying is also the thing that makes you love them. And I kind of think that Elmer Fudd had that going on with Bugs Bunny where it drove him crazy, but also found him endearing at the same time. That That's my takeaway on it. Um, I did get to meet Bugs Bunny at Six Flags in the full cart, you know, in the full costume, and that was hot. I was of age, okay? I was 22, so it wasn't weird then. I'm sure he remembered <laughs> it very well as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, boy. You have any others? Any you know, other? I think it's, um, look at that. I think it might be time to wrap up. Uh, <laughs> well, what are you doing? What are you doing with Smudge for Valentine's Day? How are you celebrating it? With yeah. Him? So Smudge and I, we are celebrating Valentine's Day with a romantic dinner at home. We're going to make a, a beef Wellington together. Mm -hmm. I know. Very excited. 
and I'll be drinking wine and he'll be drinking ice water. <laughs> and I have a very special little Valentine's Day present for him, which is one of these roasted bison marrow bones that I get at the Union Square Farmer's Market. He loves them. And they're $12 a pop, but you know, they uh, they come in handy and that will be his special little treat tonight. Oh, that's very sweet. That's very sweet. So I am going to make Ruthie watch a bunch of Sarah McLaughlin videos, um, remind her where she came from, and that... <laughs> I could easily put her back on the streets and she could be in one of those commercials one day. So she better <laughs> appreciate what she has. <laughs> She's going to have that theme song stuck in her head. In the arms of an angel. It's going to be stuck in her head. And every time she hears that song come on, She's going to run and hide in the corner. She's going to thank her lucky stars. <laughs> oh, my God. No, we're, I'm going to probably binge watch some dog shows with Ruthie. Um, you know, she has a sensitive stomach, so I can't, I can't be too oh. uh, wild with the things that I give her. But she'll have a good meal. We'll have a good cuddle. Maybe she'll get a little bit of an extra long walk in the park that day if the weather's nice enough. Um, but like always, she won't appreciate anything that I do for her. And she'll swap <laughs> no. me. She'll swap me in the face the next morning telling me to wake up and tell her, tell me it's time to go out. Yeah. <laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> oh my God. I love this. Uh, literally. I loved it doing this episode with you. Yeah. You this was great. so good on you. This was an excellent one. Yeah. And like I said, we've defined it on this episode. Dogs love us. Animals love. There's no more scientific studies that need to be done. We broke it down for everyone. So all those labs are going to get shut down probably after this episode comes out. So <laughs> hope the scientists can find more funding to study something else. <laughs> I love it. And you know, since it's Valentine's Day, as far as great duos go, I have to say, Anya, you are one of my favorite collaborators of all time. So, you know, just throwing that out there. Thank you. Same to you. I'm giving you a heart. Heart <laughs> to heart. <laughs> and we love our listeners. Thank you all for tuning in. Follow us on the Furfluence at the Furfluencers on Instagram, Twitter. Go to our website at thefurfluencers.com to sign up for our newsletter and like and subscribe on Spotify and iTunes. And if you're feeling love towards us, leave us a review. Only nice ones. Till next time.